This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Spirituality and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jack Petranker. I'm the host of the channel today. And today we're going to be talking with Professor Anne Gleick about her new book, American Dharma. And I want to say right at the outset that it has a really interesting subtitle um, that I think is one of the things we'll be talking about. The subtitle is Buddhism Beyond Modernity. So that's not all we'll be discussing, but uh, I think that'll be one of the areas that's interesting. So, Anne Gleick, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, hi, Jack. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, would you like me to talk about my kind of academic background and my uh, practice history? I think both would be interesting for our listeners, yeah. Okay, great. Um, so in terms of my academic background, um, I'm an associate professor of religion and cultural studies um, at the University of Central Florida, which is um, in Orlando. Um, and I teach classes on um, Buddhism, um, Asian religions in America, Buddhism and psychoanalysis, and Hinduism. So I'm the kind of Asian, Asianist scholar uh, in the department. Um, and I'm, you know, I just finished my American Dharma project, and I'm currently working actually on a book on Buddhism and sexual abuse. Um, a co-written book with a colleague, uh, Dr. Amy Langenberg. Um, in terms of my practice history, I do identify as a scholar practitioner. Um, I have been practicing Buddhism um, really since, let's see, since my late teens. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm 45 now, so it's been quite a while, probably about 30, around 30 years Um so I started um, attending Buddhist groups in England as a teenager, and I just went to basically any, any you know, there, there wasn't a lot of Buddhism at that time. Um, so I'd go to, you know, whatever, whatever groups were kind of around. It was a lot of the friends of the Western Buddhist order. Um, and then in my 20s, I got more kind of committed to insight practice. So I did, um, you know, various retreats um, in Gaia House, um, and then I traveled around Asia. I did some of the retreat circuit um, in Thailand. Um, and then I went to India, spent a couple of years in uh, India and Nepal. Um, and I actually started to practice Tibetan Buddhism then. Um, and that was probably about, let's see, it was before I started. It was probably about, um, about 18 years ago. Um, and so... My longest kind of commitment to a Sangha is actually a Tibetan Buddhist Nyingma uh, community. It's uh, called Door Mountain. Um, it's the teachers. The teachers are Anne Klein and uh, Harvey Aronson. And, uh, the Tibetan guru is um, Atsum Rinpoche, who, who teaches in Eastern Tibet. 
Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I've been practicing with them since 2004, so about 15 years. Um, so, so yeah, that's a little, a little background on me as a scholar and a, and a practitioner. Okay, that's great. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to talk a little about that uh, teaching background because my own background, or your, your practice background rather, because my own background is also Enigma. But maybe we can do that after the uh, <laughs> after after this interview is over, after yeah, the podcast is over. Not be that yeah. interesting for the, for the yeah. Rest. yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, well, I want to get started um, with a quote from a woman named Joanne Piacenza, who you quote early in the book, um, she says, in Western modernity, Buddhism has become something that you can fit into your life, not something you shape your life around. And I thought that was an interesting distinction. Uh, do Is it your sense? So you, a lot of what you do in this book, I mean, you've really interviewed a lot of people. Um, you, you have, of course, read a lot. Um, do you think that's an accurate description? Do you think that's a shift that's taking place? Um, I think that I remember that the quote was from um, an article in which she was she was taking a kind of an aim at um, the secular mindfulness movement, and her real concern was the way in which mindfulness had become kind of decontextualized from its kind of ethical and soteriological Buddhist background. Um, and she, you know, basically saw this as as kind of symptomatic of, you know, Buddhism in kind of, you know, kind of white America um, right. in convert, you know, communities. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I did definitely see this statement as reflecting, you know, some of uh, a kind of uh, sensibility in in kind of Western Buddhist communities to be a little bit more self-critical of the direction in which, you know, Western Buddhism was going. So there's been kind of multiple critiques um, leveled outside of the communities, but my ethnographic work was really, you know, really interested in, well, what's happening in the communities themselves? So I do think there's a lot of dialogue, you know, around, you know, how can we, you know, we need to ad- ad- adapt, you know, Buddhism to meet contemporary kind of conditions and needs. But how can we do it in a way that is, you know, not totally diluting the kind of potency of the tradition? Um, like, how can we make these adaptations, which I think, you know, there is a lot of agreement that adaptations are needed, you know, for, for in new cultural kind of contexts. But there is certainly, you know, a concern that some adaptations are too, you know, superficial um, and that lose, you know, really do lose some of the power and the integrity of the tradition. So I'd I'd say that was true, that there is this kind of, you know, collective thinking together about, you know, where, where, you know, where are we in, in, you know, American Buddhism, in in convert American Buddhism, because that's my specific research population. You know, and where 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 are we going, and where do we want to be going, and where don't we want to be going? Um, right. Okay. I think that's that's really helpful to to put that in that context. That's that's one of the many areas that you look at, and and one of the things that makes your book so interesting is is um, is partly that what's happening with Buddhism right now is so interesting. It's going off in so many different directions. It seems to me. Yeah, um, it really is. And, and, you know, in thinking about that, it seems to me that um, 
there's a, a kind of shift that's happening just because Buddhism is really entering the mainstream more. And so then it finds itself engaging all of the different directions that that Western culture, American culture, but Western culture generally, uh, is moving in. Uh, and and so then it, it winds up, you know, it contributes to this direction and that direction, and it's influenced by this and it's influenced by that. And, and it, it all becomes this incredibly rich mix. And I suppose it can get a little bit chaotic too. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, one of the things that I was, you know, really hoping to offer in the book is, you know, just kind of a kind of map, a map of this, you know, very chaotic territory. I mean, there's so much happening with, you know, modern Buddhism, you know, there's the mindfulness movement has kind of exploded. There's a backlash against the mindfulness movement. And then, you know, there's a lot of work happening around racial justice and Buddhism and the kind of impact of kind of cultural movements like Me Too on Buddhism. Um, and then, you know, a dialogue between science, the dialogue between neuroscientists and scientists and Buddhism is, you know, going in another direction and producing a lot of kind of rich material. Um, so really what I wanted to offer in American Dharma was, you know, a way to think about all of these different kind of, you know, occurrences, you know, kind of, you know, mapping them out and kind of contextualizing them, kind of helping, you know, readers to make sense of this, you know, tremendous variety, as, as you mentioned. Right. I think you do a great job with that. And, and it is very interesting to, uh, to reflect on all of that. Um, but let me turn to what, what you define as the central claim of the book. That seems like something we ought to make sure to cover. Uh, you say, so I'm going to quote, she says, you say the central claim of this book is that within American Buddhist meditation-based convert lineages, so there's already a lot just in that first phrase, right? Uh, Meditation-based convert lineages, there is an increasing interrogation of Buddhist modernism and the emergence of characteristics that are more associated with the postmodern than the modern. Right. So, I mean, that is a really good starting point. So essentially, that's basically the major theoretical contribution of the book. So I would say, you know, to to readers, um, to you know, interested readers, there's kind of two ways to approach my book. They're, they're, they're related, um, but I think can be helpful to separate for non-academic and academic audiences. So for non-academic audiences, I think, you know, the book will be really interesting just as a kind of what is happening right now in, you know, American kind of convert lineages. Um, and they're kind of case studies of, you know, what's happening with mindfulness, what's happening with sexual scandals, what's happening with, you know, technology and Buddhism. Um, so that's a kind of uh, more kind of ethnographic, kind of rich, uh, detailed uh, stuff in the book. But then there's also a kind of theoretical, analytical, you know, kind of framework of the book, um, which is, you know, my contribution to Buddhist studies. So in Buddhist studies, um, the dominant kind of academic framework for understanding contemporary Buddhism is what we call Buddhist modernism. And essentially, Buddhist modernism refers to the forms of Buddhism that emerge through the encounter of Western modernity and traditional Asian Buddhism 
which took place under the conditions of colonialism in the 19th century. So essentially, you know, um, you had like traditional Asian Buddhism and Southeast Asia and East Asia. And then, you know, as these Asian kind of countries came in to contact, sometimes enforce contact with, you know, Western modernity through kind of colonial powers, you know, this really impacted Buddhism, it impacted um, Buddhists had to respond to, you know, the colonizers. They had to kind of legitimate Buddhism. They were under a lot of kind of cultural and kind of political kind of pressure because obviously the, the colonizers also brought Christianity, Christianity as, you know, which they, you know, felt was, a, you know, the most evolved religion. So in kind of responding to, you know, Western colonial kind of powers and, and also the discourses of modernity, you know, they kind of presented a kind of, it's not, it's more of a selective Buddhism, you know, so we see, you know, in the early encounters of Buddhist uh, monastics with, you know, Christian priests or kind of colonial figures, you know, that they really tend to emphasize that, well, Buddhism's really scientific. You know, and the Buddha was like, they present the Buddha as this early kind of empirical figure. Because um, obviously they're responding to the pressure of, you know, Western modernity kind of showing off, you know, they're kind of, we've got science, like, what have you got type of thing. Um, so it's very dialogical. The forms of Buddhism that emerge in Asia at this time are already kind of dialogical. And we already think of them as kind of modernized. So in, cha in chapter one of the book, I basically summarize all of the scholarship, you know, previous scholarship on Buddhist modernism. And sometimes scholars call it Protestant Buddhism or Reform Buddhism. Um, and I especially kind of uh, use one, uh, one, one book, uh, one scholar's work. It's David McMahon's uh, The Making of Buddhist Modernism. This is a kind of seminal uh, text on contemporary Buddhism. And so in this text, David McMahon, who is a, a, a great colleague and a friend, basically looks at, you know, how, you know, modernist Buddhism shows the, these, the influences of not just traditional Buddhism, the script, you know, the Pali Canon or the Mahayana Sutras, but also has the influence of the major uh, discourses of modernity, which are, you know, the Enlightenment lineage, the Romantic lineage, and also liberal Protestantism. Um, and it's, it's a really fantastic text, and I really encourage, uh, you know, interested readers to, to pursue it. Um, so basically, you know, several of the scholars and then David kind of established this framework of Buddhist modernism. But in my, you know, fieldwork um, with, you know, contemporary American Buddhist communities, I found that what was happening on the ground in those communities didn't fit fully into the framework of Buddhist modernism. So essentially, that's, you know, why, why I argue that, you know, the current developments need, we need, a, we need to think anew theoretically to understand them. And so in the last chapter, I look at, you know, I ask, well, what, how do we understand what's come after modernity? And also, of course, the project of modernity in Asia is, it's it intricately linked with colonialism. So we, I also ask, well, what's come after colonialism? And so in the penultimate, oh, sorry, in the conclusion of the book, I look at uh, the postmodern, uh, the post-colonial, um, and the post-secular, um, and, and a few other paradigms. And I, you know, basically investigate, well, do, do these, you know, theoretical frameworks help, help us understand, you know, 
current developments more. And I basically argue, yeah, that they do, you know. So that's the that's a kind of theoretical contribution um, that I'm making. But I wouldn't, you know, I, I just want to add, you know, the book, I, I wrote the book with three audiences in mind, uh, obviously fellow academics, you know, colleagues, um, undergraduate students. I am very passionate about teaching and I always think about, you know, would this be accessible to my students? Would this, you know, would this be a good book for the classroom? Um, but I also wanted to write it to be accessible for practitioners because I think it can really help them think about, you know, where where they are in the cultural kind of landscape. Um, so, you know, there is there are, there are these theoretical terms, um, but I don't think they're essential, you know, to really accessing what's you know the case studies in the text. Um, I mean, what do you think? Is that your? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, I'm I'm probably um, an ideal audience for this book because I. I share all those different interests. Um, but uh, I would say, and I haven't used this book in teaching myself yet, but I uh, hope to find an opportunity to do so. And I think it'll work really well for students. And as far as uh, the individual, well, as far as practitioners, I, I, I think especially with respect to the question of, of you know, how do different Buddhist groups, different sanghas, if you want to use that term, um, how do they evolve in, in the face of what's happening with Buddhism now? I, I think you frame those questions or in a very interesting way and, and provide a whole lot of information. So yes, I, I think, I mean, my own judgment for what it's worth is that you've done a great job of making it uh, relevant to all three audiences that you mentioned. Oh, great. Thank you. So, um, so let's go back to David McMahon's approach um, and and some of the things you you mentioned because you know one of the reasons that it all gets very complicated very quickly uh, is that although um, modernism has this kind of scientific and materialist approach, um, part of what David points out uh, is that that. Um, there's also this romanticist strain, which you mentioned, and then also a kind of psychologization um, of, of um, Buddhism that takes place. And it, so it's, you can't just say, and, and I know there, there were Buddhists, you know, there, there were Buddhists in Asia who said, yes, we're the real scientific religion, not Christianity. But um, in terms of practice, this the relationship to the romantic strains of thought in the West was seems to me to be equally important, and I guess especially if you look back, you know, to what happened in the West in the in the sixties and seventies, um, the people who took up Buddhism tended to be people who were rebelling against modernism. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, do, you, do you want me to speak a little bit of the, you know, to that romantic lineage? Yes, I would. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not sure, you know, the, what, whether, the audience, whether the audience will be familiar with, you know, what modernity is. Um, but essentially, you know, when scholars look at modernity, they look at the Enlightenment lineage, um, which, you know, as you, as, you, as you rightly said, is associated with, you know, rationality, um, with like, you know, locating reason, 
as a kind of most valuable part of the human and you know the development of the scientific and kind of empirical method right and let me, so, let, me break, yeah. let me break in for one moment because it might cause yeah. a little confusion you say um they associate or modernism is associated with 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 the Enlightenment, but of course we're talking about the Western understanding of light, Enlightenment and not oh, yeah, Buddhist Enlightenment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we're def I'm definitely talking about the Western Enlightenment here. Right. Um, yeah, just I'm glad you clarified. Um, but, you know, alongside, you know, almost simultaneously happening as a reaction against um, the Enlightenment was, you know, Romanticism. And so the Romantics were, you know, really kind of concerned that the Enlightenment lineage was, you know, taking the kind of like mystery out of existence. Um, and so they really sought to kind of preserve, you know, the mystical, they were really interested in religious experience. Um, they were, they tended to be anti-Christian, you know, they were in a kind of rebellion against Christianity. So the Romantics really looked to Asia for inspiration um, and, you know, they had a very kind of selective, really kind of distorted, you know, distorted would be the, you know, the harsher word and selective would be the kind of kinder word. Um, but really, you know, they didn't see Asia as Asia. They saw Asia as, you know, what they were looking, what they what they were missing, what was missing in the West. Um, so this really is what we call the start of affirmative Orientalism. Um, and you really do see it manifesting, you know, the, even before the beat generation in the 1950s, you know, with the uh, transcendentalists, you know, the transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau, you know, they were the first kind of romantics in a way in, in America. And they were, you know, also, you know, some of the first Americans to, you know, talk about Asian religions. And they, they often they had very limited knowledge and they often confused Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, but, you know, you definitely see this kind of lineage from the European romantics coming through, you know, through Europe over to America, the transcendentalists, and then the beat generation, and then the kind of hippie counterculture is, you know, the counterculture is definitely our kind of late 1960s expression of romanticism. And so, yeah, I think you really do see, you know, the romantic lineage in, in Buddhism, um, in the, as you said, in the psychotherapeutic lineage. So many scholars understand depth psychology. They understand you, especially young and kind of humanistic forms of depth psychology, transpersonal psychology. They see them as essentially romantic movements. And I think that's, you know, had a tremendous influence on, you know, shaping um, Buddhism in America, undoubtedly. So, so yeah, so we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of, you know, either the Enlightenment lineage or the Romantic lineage. And I, and I actually tackle both lineages separately in the book. So I look at the mindfulness movement as an example of the Enlightenment lineage because it's relied, it relies so heavily on, you know, a scientific framing. Um, and I look at, you know, the introduction of psychotherapy uh, into Buddhist communities to think about, you know, where is the Romantic kind of lineage at? you know, now with, with Buddhism. That's really interesting. Yeah, the the um, the psychotherapeutic side, one of the things you, you point out about that, and I think we can get into that a little later, is that even if you start to look at the postmodern expressions uh, or, or let's say, um, Gen X communities, um, psychotherapy still plays a really important role. So that's something that's carried over, yeah. right? Definitely. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, one thing that I like to that I found helpful to distinguish between is when thinking about Buddhism and psychotherapy is uh, dialogical approaches and on the one hand and reductive approaches on the other. Um, and I borrow this uh, distinction from a, a former professor of mine in graduate school, Bill Parsons. Um, and I find it useful because in a reductive approach, Buddhism is, you know, basically assimilated into the discourse of psychotherapy. So, you know, Buddhism just becomes a psychotherapy, like it's entirely contained and kind of, you know, kind of subsumed into the into that uh, particular discourse. But in a dialogical approach, it's more like, okay, it's more like a Buddhism and, you know, psychotherapy. So, you know, like, let's try and, you know, let's talk across these two bodies of knowledge, you know, like, what are the areas that Buddhism, uh, you know, kind of goes into the, you know, there's no, you know, there's no kind of reflection within psychotherapy on those, you know, states, or, you know, how my psychotherapy, you know, makes sense of some of the, you know, what people call the shadow, you know, sides of, of Western Buddhism. Um, and so I, I think, you know, ideally, you know, I would always say, you know, I would, you know, encourage, you know, dialogical approaches, you know, like think about the limb, you know, what can each, you know, what, what might each discourse shine a light on the other, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, that I do, I do go into that in, I think it's a chapter, it's chapter on the sexual abuse scandals. I think it's chapter three or four. Right. I, I think that is where it comes up. And um, it it is very interesting. And it, it strikes me actually that, you know, I'm thinking right now of something that um, that Don Lopez, who's another academic in in this area, um, wrote about one time in an in article in uh, in in Zygon, which was talking more about the dialogue or the potential for dialogue between Buddhism and science. And he said, you know, there's a there's a possible risk when you get into that kind of dialogue, because the tendency is to say, well, let's set aside the areas where we disagree. And, and look for the areas where we can have common dialogue. But the risk when you do that is you're setting aside the areas that are really the most fundamental. Um, and, and, and I suppose with psychotherapy, that's a little less true because it, with science, there's a, you know, science makes these claims about the nature of reality. And Buddhism makes claims about the nature of reality, and and those can be difficult to reconcile. But psychotherapy is not so interested, maybe, in um, you know what's real. There, it, it, it's got a little bit more of a pragmatic thrust, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it's you know I think that's you know Don was, Don's a giant, of course, in Buddhist studies, and I think that you know. He wrote, I think it was called Science for the Buddhism, Science for the Perplex. He tends to be more kind of negative. You know, he tends to be more critical um, of, you know, the, the, the potential for dialogue, as you say, for those reasons. Um, I think with psychotherapy, um, I think there's some really good work and also some really terrible work. So, you know, Ira, I want to just, you know, mention a colleague's work, um, a colleague called Ira Haldeman has just um, released a book called Prescribing the Dharma. And he basically looks really carefully at how different therapists, many of whom are also Buddhists, um, you know, basically, you know, move between Buddhism and therapy. 
And so it actually shows there's actually a range of approaches. And some of them, I think, you know, are definitely more problematic because they just avoid, you know, all areas of conflict where, you know, as you say, you know, more, more juice could come from, from that. And then others, I think, are, you know, much more well-developed and also very pragmatic, you know. So I think that a lot of people have found, a lot of Buddhists, you know, traditional Buddhists committed to traditional Buddhism with, you know, traditional Buddhism in quotes because it's also a bit of a problematic term. But they have found that, you know, using some psychotherapeutic principles or methods can be really helpful, you know, in Buddhist sanghas. Um, so yeah, that's more pragmatic, you know, I think that you're right. It's, it's around like the health of practitioners, you know, what we know, for example, while undertaking intensive retreats. Um, right. No, that, that's, um, that's very interesting. And I'll, I'll take a look at that book if I get the chance. Um, you, you do mention that, um, psychotherapy has really become a, a, a very central element, and I, I suppose it's. I think it's John Wellwood makes this uh, had coined this term spiritual bypassing, um, where where if I understand correctly, it it means that you you turn to the spiritual side, or you turn to the meditation practice, and so on, um, as as a way maybe of um, maybe avoiding is too strong, but but okay that okay avoiding. Um, certain issues that would be better worked out on the psychological level. Yeah, I think that was, you know, a really great contribution from John Wellwood. I think he, did he pass recently? I'm, I'm not sure. I think he might have, but um, I think it's really, you know, he was a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner or even teacher and also a therapist. So I think he was someone, you know, who was trained in both fields and, you know, was able to identify you know, essentially a kind of misuse of, 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 of Buddhist practice, you know, to avoid, you know, like, you know, Buddhists who would, you know, had like interpersonal issues, you know, who would, you know, use, you know, Buddhist practice as a way to, you know, avoid kind of contact or to kind of justify or kind of legitimate, you know, what might have been kind of more schizoid tendencies. And I just say, you know, in, in, in the history of Christianity, you know, the, the field of pastoral uh, theology is a really rich one. And, you know, Christians and, you know, have long recognized that, you know, some religious practice can, you know, Christian religious practice can be, you know, you know, uplifting and also pathological. And so in a way, you know, Buddhism, Buddhism's kind of catching up with that field, you know, Buddhists are kind of recognizing that, you know, some practitioners are using practices or using doctrines you know, to justify or, you know, to hide, you know, what are psychological issues that definitely would be best treated, you know, in a kind of therapeutic setting. So I think that's really about, I think it's a very valuable contribution. Um, though I would also say that I think that, you know, there are some, you know, other thornier questions around, you know, how, you know, Buddhists might understand some forms of depression you know, differently than, you know, Western kind of, you know, therapists might. And I'm not talking about a kind of clinical depression, you know, because there are obviously, you know, forms of clinical depression that need appropriate, you know, biomedical treatment. I think that's super important. Um, but, you know, we also do live in a kind of, you know, an American culture, which is, you know, there is a kind of, 
low tolerance for kind of depressions or for kind of experiences that, you know, Buddhists might label as, you know, dukkha, you know, and not something that you need to take a pill for. So, you know, I think it's it's quite complex. Do you know what I mean? So on the one hand, I think there are these very pragmatic uses of psychotherapy and psychology and you know actually Harvey Aronson who's one of my teachers um, at Dawn Mountain you know wrote a fantastic book called Buddhist Practice on Western Ground which you know actually was the reason I actually started practicing with him because I thought it was really wise Um, but then I also think you know more philosophically I guess you know we could have a conversation about you know the, the deep differences in a Buddhist worldview and a kind of American kind of individualistic you know, even humanistic one, you know, but that's, that's probably for a, for a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> well, there are definitely some interesting issues there, but, but let's, let's, you know, we want to stay maybe closer to your book. So as you mentioned, the place that this question of um, not avoiding the, the psychotherapeutic side uh, in your book, you treat that in connection with the, the whole, history of sexual scandals um where yeah so can you say something about that yeah that was in a way it was kind of one of the hardest but also one of the most exciting chapters for me so one of the I'm, i'm really interested in the topic of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct in buddhist sanghas um and i you know i kind of been i've been tackling it from different angles but in the book i was really interested in the ways in which uh, I was looking specifically at sexual misconduct and scandals in the American Zen community. Um, And I was specifically interested in how some American Zen teachers um, had advocated for understanding, you know, primarily understanding these situations, you know, through through a therapeutic lens rather than, say, through a Buddhist ethical lens. Um, and that they were also basically advocating that, you know, the repetition of the scandals kind of showed that there was a need, you know, to bring psychotherapy into, you know, Americans and communities that, you know, it was like it it would be a very useful, you know, supplement to the kind of, again, traditional in quotation marks because the communities aren't traditional and modernist, but, you know, the training that they were already getting you know, as to be, you know, Zen priests, you know, that wasn't sufficient to, you know, prevent these kind of, you know, things happening. Um, And so I basically take three case studies. I look at Grace Ryerson, um, Barry Majid, and um, Diana Hamilton. So they're all Buddhist, you know, teachers who have, you know, had, you know, lead, lead sanghas or have led sanghas. I think Grace has recently retired. Um, and they all tackle, you know, in the, in unique ways, you know, this issue of uh, misconduct. But what is common to all of them is that they draw really heavily on psychotherapy and also psychoanalysis. Um, and so I kind of document how they do that, the different ways they do it. And then I look at then I look at responses to them, you know, to that kind of, you know, that uh, move, you know, so there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you know, the Zen community has reacted to, to that, uh, to, you know, to the psychotherapeutic kind of informed approach. And some of, some of you know, for, there's, I think I maybe detail about five responses. Um, 
but essentially I look at you know how you know so, some 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 people are really uh, positive they think it really makes sense you know to bring in psychotherapy and conflict resolution and trainings around boundaries and and power um but then you've also got this very vocal group who are really against it you know they really feel like wow you know that this is psychotherapy like psychotherapists are taking over zen and you know they're trying to like you know domesticate you know these like the zen spirit um so i just kind of you know offer the kind of landscape of of, of that kind of phenomena right and it was interesting to me i didn't know this because i'm not really connected with with uh this community but at spirit rock uh, you say, I mean, there's a whole, there's a council of teachers. They have a very vigorous program of training teachers, and they require that their teachers do what a year of psychotherapy. Is that right? Um, yeah. So Spirit Rock's quite. It's actually a really interesting community um, because, you know, that I'd say that was one of the first, maybe even the first American Buddhist, you know, community that really explicitly kind of embraced you know this this need for you know buddhism and you know supplementing buddhist practice and you know jack cornfield was one of the co-founders of spirit rock and you know one of the i detail this in the book chapter but he was you know originally teaching at ims he was one of the four co-founders of ims over on the east coast and one of the reasons he left ims um was because you know he was there was a few reasons, but one of the reasons was, you know, he was a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, just this more kind, you know, they, they, they more or less adopted the Burmese approach to intensive retreat practice. And so he kind of narrates one of the reasons that he moved to start this new community in Spirit Rock on, on the West Coast was, you know, that he became, you know, he became convinced that, you know, Buddhism needed, you know, to be more kind of uh, directed towards householders and to be more kind of integrative with the kind of you know an informed kind of psychological approach and so when they started their teacher training program which is a four-year program um it's by invite only and it basically if you do the four-year program you qualify to be a retreat teacher so it, it's really you know it's a it's a way in which you know power and authority is kind of reproduced in the insight community and so, yeah, I think they require, I think it's one year. I've, it's been a while since I read the chapter, sorry, but I think it's a one. It's either one or two years of training in one psychotherapeutic uh, module. So I think you, they get a few choices. I know that one of the choices is, so, um, is it somatics? Is that, is that, is that I, right? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, yeah, I don't recall, but but I do. I believe it's at least a year of 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 doing psychotherapy on their own, and then there's further study of of psychotherapeutic. Well, well they're, they're, yeah, they're actually so they're actually. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to get. I've got the book. Here, I've got the book here. I'm trying to bring it up. Um, they, I think they have to do a year. They have to train in a psychotherapeutic modality. Okay. Um, and I think that you know that's something that I didn't 
cover as much in the book because it's just kind of emerging now. I think I just mention it in a few paragraphs. But from that kind of lineage, you really see a much more acknowledgement now around the need to do trauma work. Like there's a big movement around trauma to have trauma-informed approaches to meditation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, David Trelevin, um, is, who is, I think, over in the Bay Area. You know, he's having a big impact on, you know, basically teaching teachers to recognize trauma symptoms, you know, in meditators. Right. And, um, and this, um, I, I mean, there's Willoughby Britton's work, too, about the dark night of the soul. Oh, yeah, yeah. Willoughby. Yeah. yeah, she's working with David. They're, they're doing okay. it together. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think one of the things she discovered um, was that although it didn't get talked about that much at that time, uh, most people who teach meditation uh, have experience with with students who, who uncover some very difficult material and sometimes don't know what to do with it. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely, you know, being an issue um, and in, you know, in these intensive retreats and, you know, it, it's really because, you know, I mean, it's really rooted in, you know, the transformation of traditional Buddhism, you know, in colonialism. And, you know, that was when, you know, we saw the emergence of these, you know, mass meditation kind of retreats. You know, historically, meditation had been a, you know, a, quite a, um, students are really surprised to hear this because they associate Buddhism so much with meditation. But, you know, meditation had been, it hadn't been practiced so widely in traditional Buddhism. It kind of fell out of kind of practice. But in the, you know, in the modernization of Buddhism, you saw the emergence of the modern, you know, meditation center. And then, you know, that in, in Asia and then that and then and then in North America. So, you know, for the first time really in Buddhist history, you had like householders, you know, practicing intensive meditations, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, um, you know, for 10 days. Um and, and, you know, often they weren't, you know, I, I, I doubt like how many were really, I mean, I think about them, I did so many of these retreats when I was, you know, in my like early 20s, late teens even. And I mean, I, you know, I had some experiences myself, you know, really difficult experiences. Um, so it totally makes sense to me that, that, that that's kind, you know, it, it was my lived experience. And I think anyone who was on, you know, did those kind of, retreat scenes would say the same you know that you'd, you'd hear people you know you know having a hard time you'd have a hard time and I think Willoughby was you know probably the first person perhaps to start really tracking you know the data in a really systematic and kind of scientific way um, but the, I think it's definitely been a source of conversation for a really long time maybe since actually the 1990s you know the 1980s with you know the first teachers like Jack Cornfield, Jack Engler you know, wrote about this. Um, so now it's just really, you know, coming more, it's more popular, it's more well-known, you know, the, the centres are, you know, I think, you know, checking on people, you know, before they take retreats and, you know, le learning about trauma. So, so yeah, it's a good thing. I think it's got to be for, you know, people's health, right? Mm. I, I wonder how much that is a, a product of the intersection of, Western understanding of of self and mind with traditional practices with with intensive meditation practices because now I don't know the answer to this at all and and, and I don't know if you do but 
you know, do these kinds of issues, these, let's say, trauma-related um, concerns, do they come up in Asian communities that are doing, you know, that are householders but doing intensive meditation practice? Do you happen to know anything about that? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, it's quite interesting um, because I think it's been, you know, typically kind of narrated as a specifically Western problem. Um, and it's been related to things like, you know, um, the, I remember there's, I think, both the Dalai Lama and um, one of the Burmese monks. It might have been, I'm not sure, which, it might have been Upandita. So, you know, he came over to IMS and uh, both him and the Dalai Lama on a different occasion kind of expressed a kind of bewilderment at um, uh, Western self-hatred. You know, like I think, you know, there's just a couple of like an anecdotal meetings in which, you know, say one of the maybe Jack Cornfield says, oh, you know, a lot of our students are really struggling with self-hatred. And what do you recommend? And, and the Dalai Lama was really confused and was like, what self-hatred? You know, there's not actually a Tibetan concept of self-hatred. And then, you know, I think the Burmese monk, it's in my book, but I've, I've forgotten which one it was, you know, says, oh, that, that's a particularly Western form of dukkha. So, so often it's being framed as, you know, this is specific to, you know, Western kind of modern practitioners, you know, the, you know, the Western cultural self, you know, the individualist self, you know, the family, the way the family model is in the West, you know, is really different than in Asia. And, you know, as a result, you know, you know, has a particular reaction to this practice. Um, so generally, I think and I actually probably in my earlier scholarship on Spirit Rock also kind of repeated this. Um, so I think there is something in the Western, you know, particular psyche. But I would say now that, you know, globalization has impacted, you know, so many communities, that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to draw a hard and distinct line between Western and Asian populations. I mean, really, for a study like that, you'd need some proper hard data, you know, you'd need someone to do, you know, some follow ups, you know, there's, there's a lot of meditation centers in Asia. So you'd have to do like a comparative study, right, of like, you know, a, you know, Thai practitioners or Burmese practitioners who were householders, you know, compared with, you know, Western household practitioners. So that would be a really interesting kind of study. Um, but, you know, so really we could, I think I could only speculate, really. Right, right. No, it's, it's, yeah, I'm just raising the issue and I agree, you'd need to do some, some field work and I don't know if anybody's doing that sort of thing. So so let me switch over to a, a, a somewhat different topic, one that comes out of what you were just saying, and that was this sense of particularly Western forms of dukkha. So so dukkha, just in case uh, we, we need to get clear on the term, well, actually, it's hard to get clear on the term, but the usual, <laughs> the usual translation is suffering. So let's just go with that. Um, so particularly Western forms of suffering, um, so one of the ways in which that comes up, and this is a whole other area that you explore, is, um, I'm not quite sure the best way to say this, uh, when Buddhism is taken out into uh, traditionally in, in the West underrepresented communities, so um, people of color, uh, people who are, well, I don't know, prison populations, uh, people dealing with with poverty, those kinds of issues, um, and and there, you know, my sense in reading your book and in some other things I've looked at uh, is that 
there is a there's a sense well this is a kind of suffering that really matters in the west that needs to be dealt with differently yeah i think well let's see so i think in the, i'm going to just refer back to the book just to kind of ground uh, the discussion so uh, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book on, I think it's actually called The Dukkha of Racism. And so it looks at attempts um, that have actually been going on for over two decades um, in, you know, predominantly white American Buddhist, Buddhist sanghas, um, at attempts to, you know, to bring more diversity and inclusion and kind of equity. Um, so what we, what we might think of as uh, racial justice work. And one of the ways that, you know, Buddhists of colour and their white allies who are working on, you know, this, you know, this kind of work, um, uh, one of the ways they talk about racism is as, you know, a, a form of dukkha, as a kind of collect, you know, both you know, thinking about racism, uh, not just as a kind of individual bias, which I think is, you know, what a lot of Americans can get stuck on, just thinking, you know, racism is just an individual attitude. Um, but also thinking about racism as, you know, structural conditions in society that kind of perpetuate, you know, racial hierarchies. And so they talk literally, so the, the, the title of the chapter, The Duca of Racism, I think is a direct quote of, of one of my kind of interlocutors. Um, and so um, I think this fits in generally in that there's this kind of movement happening in Buddhism now where there's a real, there's a real, exp- there's a shift or a kind of expansion of thinking of liberation, uh, like not just in individual terms, like I am individually liberated or I'm liberated from individuality, um, but more to like collective liberation. And so for collective liberation, you know, there's a need to ask different questions, you know, such as, well, what, what forms of collective suffering do we need to be liberated from? So in that sense, you know, racism is identified as, you know, a specific type of dukkha in white, white America in general and also white Buddhist America. Um, and so it, it's basically saying that, you know, traditional Buddhism, you know, tends to talk about the individual nature of dukkha and that we're basically extending that understanding, right? We're going to look at how it manifests on a kind of structural or socio-cultural level so it's essentially the, it's essentially a theological statement right I don't I hate to use a Christian word but it's a buddhological statement and you know one way that it kind of legitimates itself is it often you know looks back on you know how the Buddha you know rejected the caste system you know so they say well you know there's already that precedent in Buddhism you know that the Buddha named you know this kind of you know socio-cultural hierarchy as you know like false and kind of ethically wrong um and so so there's always so i guess what i want to emphasize is it's it's kind of a lived it's, it's a lived buddhology it's happening it's happening in the bodies of actual buddhists and they're looking at buddhist scriptures and making sense of um, contemporary conditions, like how can we understand racism from a Buddhist perspective? Um, and so, so yeah, so that's you know that's a kind of idea of structural dukkha or specific forms of dukkha. Um, I wouldn't want to just say racism is only a part is only happening in in America because there is you know there is historically there are definitely you know 
um, racist and classist incidences in the history of Buddhism. Um, so I think that, you know, there is historical precedence, but there is something innovative happening as well. Um, so, yeah, so I just want to like, I just want to encourage people to think both of like, how is this, you know, new, how are these new forms of Buddhism, you know, both a continuation of Buddhist history, if not Buddhist scripture, um, and also, you know, doing something new. I think that both is kind of happening. Right. So, so I guess the question that comes up then is, if you identify these sort of collective forms of dukkha and the possibility of collective liberation, how does that relate to the focus, at least as it's been brought to the West, on on individual meditation? Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, again, I think we always have to look at, you know, the individual meditation, you know, practice as really a modernist development. Um, And in a way, you know, we can say that, you know, from the beginning of, you know, the emergence of a mass meditation movement for householders and, you know, and not just monastics, and it had been, you know, mostly the you know, purview of monastics and only kind of a, a small percentage of monastics. Um, so certainly in Theravada Buddhism, at least. Um, and now it's become this mass movement. And as it's become a mass movement, it's kind of being successively decontextualized. You know, it's being, you know, if you trace it over, like if you look at Eric Braun's book, he, he's got this great book called The Birth of Insight, which he's, which talks about how insight meditation began as a react in Burma, as a reaction to British colonialism, you know, if you if you trace that to like say take Jeff Wilson's book on you know mindful America, you can see you know across this you know historical kind of historical period and um, also uh, geographical period, you know meditation has been successively decontextualized. But now what I see is that you know, there's a recognition of the harm that has been done or the potential for harm in this decontextualization. So you're almost seeing a kind of an attempt to recontextualize. So it's not necessarily like going right back to, oh, let's go back to traditional Buddhism where only monks, you know, meditated. But there are these attempts to, you know, embed meditation, individual meditation in a more, you know, communal and kind of safe and kind of ethical context. So I I essentially see, you know, like, you know, this trauma-informed approaches to meditation and also, you know, this kind of, there's a big movement to like, we need to really think about the third jewel, you know, we've really neglected, sorry, we've really neglected sangha we've really neglected community and we need to build up community like i see them as i see them all as essentially in a way attempts to kind of re-embed you know what has been so disembedded you know so there, there really are ways to like you know work you know with individual meditation practice as just you know one component of a much larger picture if that does that make sense Sure, that absolutely makes sense. But it it does raise the question, though, um, which you do address at at various points in the book, um, about, you know, to what extent do you say, look, when you come right down to it, Buddhism is about enlightenment. Now, if you recast that and you say it's about liberation from suffering, which is certainly another way it gets talked about, then maybe, 
you know, this, this all makes very good sense. But if you say it's about enlightenment and enlightenment is about really a, an entirely different vision of reality, then the question becomes when you go off in this direction and, and you emphasize, say, community and you emphasize collective forms of, um, of suffering, are, are you letting go of something that's really essential in Buddhism? Right. That's a real, there's a lot there. So I want to kind of be careful how I respond to it. So first of all, I want to say that, um, I want to do two things. I want to respond to the question that Buddhism is, is really about enlightenment on, on its own ground. So I want to, I want to take that as say that is true and I'm going to respond to it as if it was true. And then I want to just kind of put a little bit pressure on that question. So in terms of if we if we agree that Buddhism is really just about enlightenment, I would say that there are still many Western Buddhist community, well, American, because I want to, I should say in America, because that's my, you know, specific focus. There are still many American Buddhist communities that are really just focused on enlightenment. Um, and so, you know, in, in, I think it's chapter four, I've got a chapter on awakening and meditation in the Vipassana community. And so in that chapter, I basically delineate two kind of central approaches to awakening and enlighten, and enlighten sorry, meditation and, and, and awakening. And I call one of them the kind of relational integrative approach. Um, and I call the other one the technical, textual approach. It, it makes much more sense in the context of the chapter, in case the listeners are like, what are you talking about? Um, but the textual technical, technical approach is essentially in some ways a critique of what you're also maybe critiquing. You know, that approach says basically like, yes, Buddhism is about enlightenment. Let's just really focus on, you know, the progress of insight. Let's go back to the commentaries. Like, let's look at Buddha Gosa's, you know, path of purification. You know, let's get, you know, they're really into this kind of, you know, the Burmese, they take a lot of inspiration from the Burmese lineage, which is really like, hey, you know, you can come and you can practice meditation and you get enlightened in, you know, six months or something like that. So, you know, I would say don't worry that that is happening in, in American Buddhism and the rhetoric of it is happening. Um, and I would say, you know, a lot of sanghas that I've been into, I would say are very traditional, you know, in that sense of, you know, they were talking about liberation and meditation and it's all about like how much practice did you do and how many weeks of meditation did you do? So I wouldn't worry. I mean, I think that that lineage is alive and kicking, um, but there are all of these other, you know, visions as well that's happening. Right. So that's one response. But the other response, which is, you know, a little bit, you know, I'm just kind of poking the question a little bit is that when we say, you know, Buddhism is really about enlightenment, we're making a theological statement as much as an historical statement, because Buddhism is, you know, you know, it, 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 there's just there's so many historically different Buddhist communities and the percentage of Buddhist practitioners who were just, you know, focused just on enlightenment, um, you know, what, what were, you know, in the in the in the percentage of Buddhist practitioners on the whole is a really small elite population. Um, and so you're already privileged as a scholar of religion. You know, we wouldn't necessarily just look at the soteriological goal of a religion and the elite class in the religion, which is basically male monastics, right? We wouldn't necessarily say that that is the essence of Buddhism. 
And in fact, as religious studies scholars, we would say that that's quite a modernist, you know, approach to religion. You know, so we we would say, well, you know, we would point to like, you know, the pure land, you know, tradition, which they didn't even practice meditation. You know, so we would point to, you know, lay women in the history of Buddhism who have never had the time or resources to meditate because they've been supporting male monastics. So I think that like, I just want to push back on the question because I think that, you know, the image of Buddhism in the the West and in America, you know, is that, you know, Buddhism is just about meditation and enlightenment. And there's already so many assumptions and, you know, historic kind of privileges and, you know, kind of uh, happening in that one statement. Um, so, so in a way, so there's just so many different ways you could kind of approach that kind of concern from, you could say, well, don't worry, you know, there's still a lot of people trying to be enlightened. And then you could also say, well, the concern itself is somewhat problematic because, you know, it kind of reduces so like million, you know, I don't know about the millions, but thousands of like <laughs> Buddhist practitioners in, you know, Asia as well as the West, that they're not really doing Buddhism, right? Um, so I think it's it's something of a contentious uh, statement and issue. I, no, I, I, I think you're right. And I think you, that was very helpful, what you just said to clarify the issues. I think that's one of the emerging questions, you know, there's, as as we said, I think toward the outset, there's so much happening in Buddhism in the West now, um, or in America, to stay focused there, and it's going in so many different directions that um, you need to be sensitive to all the strands that weave into what we call Buddhism, and and look to see, you know, how do you balance that? What part do you want to really emphasize? Um, and 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 I suppose in part that's going to have to do I, I don't really want to go in this direction, but let me just make a statement and then I want to turn to something else. Um I it's going to relate in part to the question of um what can you do that benefits other beings? What what is what aspect of the Buddhist tradition will um will accomplish that in our culture and our time in the most effective way? Yeah, I think, you know, you really landed on, I think, a really, you know, key point because I know there's, you know, there is, you know, there's all, you know, Engage Buddhism is, again, it's actually, you know, started in Asia. It's, it's not a Western invention. Um, but, you know, Engage Buddhism is, has really, you know, kind of gotten more mainstream attention in, in North America, especially around issues of, you know, racial justice and climate justice is also a really important issue. Um, and, you know, also, you know, more sensitivity around, you know, non-normative genders, issues of gender and sexuality have, you know, come, come to the forefront. And, you know, I, I do hear all the time, you know, Buddhists, other Buddhists, you know, complaining like, you know, there's kind of two, there's kind of two, there's two, there's two complaint, there's two like typical complainers, you know. I think there's 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 a, there's complainers who are who do seem like genuinely perplexed that well how does this you know fit in with you know more traditional you know what I know is a more traditional approach to Buddhism um, you know and I think there's a kind of really genuine kind of you know question and uh, to put you know these new issues you know into dialogue with you know more conservative forms of Buddhism that you might find. Um, and then there's complainers who, 
seem, you know, that they, they obviously have a kind of political axe to grind themselves, that they don't like progressives, they don't like leftists. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, there's a leftist takeover of Buddhism. But, you know, what I find, you know, is a staple across all of these different forms of engaged Buddhism. And, you know, there is multiple forms and they don't all agree. But what's really central, I think, to all of them is this sense of, you know, the, I guess the Bodhisattva vow, you know, that like our goal as Buddhists should be to liberate all beings, you know, to save all people from suffering. So really at the heart, you know, the, the kind of, you know, beaten heart of this work, I think, is really motivated by, you know, a desire to reduce suffering for all sentient beings, you know, which is, you know, certainly a, certainly a Buddhist concern as you say. Right. Okay. Well, that's, I, I think you're right. And, you know, it's going to, um, what's the, what's the phrase? Shake itself out, right? We'll have to see yeah. how, 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 yeah. how these well, things develop. Yeah. Keep, yeah. Keep us, I think it'll keep us both in the job, right? So, so I want to touch on one other area um, bec- that comes out of this, uh, the, or at least is related to it. And, and that is the whole secular mindfulness movement, because I suppose well, let me let me try saying it this way. I'm not sure this is exactly right, but you could say the you know the meditation centered, um, ethically centered, you know, three training centered approach to Buddhism um, is to um, other aspects of Buddhism that were always you know much more widely practiced. You in, in Asia um, that don't necessarily focus in quite that way. And I realize I just said a lot that's actually wrong, but just to get the rough idea. Um, so those two are related to each other in somewhat the way that, that um, Dharma communities that do focus on meditation here in the West are related to secular mindfulness, which takes as its focus um, stress reduction and reduction of issues like, you know, go more in the psychological uh, direction, burnout, anxiety, and so on. That was a very complicated way of putting it, but is that clear? (laughs) Um, I think so. Uh, What what would you, because there's a lot going on there in that question, what what, what would be most helpful for me to talk about in relationship? Like, how have Buddha seen secular mindfulness or or the ethical concerns, or yeah, the the uh, the ethical concerns that come up in relation to secular mindfulness, and and I suppose so. So yes, that's what that would be great if you could focus on that. But I suppose the reason I I tried to frame it the way I did um, is is that you could say, well, you know, if Buddhism helps people in their daily lives, isn't that what it's always done? And yeah. Yeah, I know that's definitely, yeah, that is definitely a response. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, secular mindfulness, I cover it in chapter two. Um, it's called from, I really love this title, so I just, I just share it. It's called uh, From the Mindfulness Revolution to the Mindfulness Wars, um, which I just th- think is a really cool uh, book title. <laughs> I mean, chapter title. <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> it's a really good one. So, yeah, so secular mindfulness is just, you know, such an interesting kind of site um, to kind of think about in relationship to Bud- to contemporary Buddhism. So essentially, you know, what you've got is uh, secular mindfulness, you know, develops out of 
Buddhist modernism. And uh, Jeff Wilson in Mindful America basically traces the secular mindfulness movement to three main sources. So one is um, the insight community, you know, um, IMS, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon uh, Salzberg. Um, And then two is Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and three is John Kabat-Zinn. Um, and so he shows it as, you know, a continuation of Buddhist modernism. And so, you know, the early kind of teachers and proponents of secular mindfulness, you know, are also, you know, these big Buddhist figures. Um, and in many cases, you know, have Buddhist communities, you know, obviously Thich Nhat Hanh and, 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 and Jack and Joseph and Sharon. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, you've got these Buddhist teachers who've been really enthusiastic um, and the book, there is a book, I think, called The Mindfulness Revolution, The Mindful Revolution. Um, and it's a it's a editor collection. And you've got, you know, these various Buddhist teachers from the insight and the Zen world, you know, basically talking about, you know, how they see, as you say, you know, as how they see secular mindfulness, you know, as essentially an, an extension of Buddhism, that, you know, it's a way to, you know, bring some form of the Dharma you know, into, you know, audiences or contexts that wouldn't, you know, come in, come into touch with it otherwise. And that it's doing, you know, the work of the Dharma, you know, essentially that it's reducing suffering. That's the kind of bottom line. Uh, you know, some talk of it as like skillful means, you know, it's a form of upaya. Um, and so there was quite a lot of kind of enthusiasm amongst Buddhist communities when secular mindfulness kind of started. And, you know, oh, this is a really great thing. Um, but then, you, you know, a few years later, it all happened quite quickly. It was really blew up and then there was a massive backlash, basically. Um, and so I'd say there's been two main groups um, that have a backlash. So two main Buddhist groups. So one group I would say are, you know, again, hate to use these lang- this language, but, you know, the more traditional Buddhists. So I think um, Bhikkhu, uh, Thanissaru, Ajahn Jeff, um, who you might know, he's, he's down at San Diego, you know, he wrote a kind of, uh, he, he basically wrote a booklet about how like secular mindfulness was distinct and less than, you know, uh, mindfulness in the Pali canon, and, you know, basically explained, you know, all the different, you know, explained, very, it was a very close textual reading of mindfulness in the Pali canon, um, again, secular mindfulness and showed, you know, how they were really different and, you know, was especially concerned about the, you know, mindfulness in the Pali Canon is always practiced, you know, as part of the total Buddhist path with an ethical kind of, you know, arm and, you know, towards a soteriological goal. Um, and so it was a very kind of classical critique. Um, but then you've also got a kind of group of critics um, who, basically um, critique mindfulness more on socioeconomic grounds. Um, but it gets a bit confusing because they also they use they, they also draw on traditional Buddhism. So they kind of wed, they kind of combine a traditional critique with a radical social justice critique. So they, you know, that they would say, you know, or they do say, you know, like the problem with secular mindfulness is it's become you know, a commodity of neoliberalism, 
So it's essentially being, you know, when it's used in corporations, it's just being used, you know, to help, you know, workers produce more and to, you know, basically accept unjust conditions, you know. So, like, they're not, you know, arguing for, like, more pay or, like, you know, better work hours because they're just kind of, you know, doing mindfulness and accepting reality as it is. Um, So it's essentially a neo-Marxist critique of mindfulness. But of course, that's a very different critique than mindfulness in the Pali Canon, because mindfulness in the Pali Canon isn't concerned with, you know, critiquing, you know, capitalism. So it's a kind of creative reading of, you know, tradition and kind of post-modernity. So that's a backlash, you know, but then... Um, And, you know, also another area is, you know, like mindfulness in the army. And so, you know, critics have said, well, it's, you know, mindfulness is being used to train, you know, soldiers to kill better. And, you know, it's producing the mindless killer. Um, And also, you know, that armies, you know, the job of being in the army is actually in tension with the Buddhist notion of right livelihood. Um, So then they're turning, you know, again, they're like, you know, it's a critique of like the military industrial complex, but also from like a Buddhist perspective. Um, so, so you've got, you know, the enthusiastic mindfulness Buddhists, and then you've got the traditional kind of monastics, and then the kind of engaged Buddhists, so those two groups, critiquing mindfulness. And then I would say there's also a third group, which is basically, which I kind of track at the end of my chapter, of Buddhists who are basically like, okay, like we actually do, you know, we do think secular mindfulness has a great potential, but we do want to take these criticisms seriously. So they're like asking, you know, how can we do secular mindfulness better? You know, and, and in a way it goes back to the fir- one of the first questions that we, you know, that we discussed about like, you know, how can we adopt, adopt and adapt Buddhist practice in ways that, you know, meet this specific sociocultural and historic period? very different from when, you know, Buddhism was developing with the suttas, you know, um, without really diluting it. Um, And so I I do think that, you know, that we are going to see more and more of that kind of third approach, you know, where, where it is still like, we're still enthusiastic overall, we still think secular mindfulness is overall a good thing, but we're not, you know, naive, we're not going to be really naive and idealistic about it. Um, Okay. Okay, that's great. I, I, I feel like we've, we're kind of coming to the end of our time, um, but I think readers will or listeners will have gotten a sense of how many different topics you've covered. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Hopefully, I think you know it's it's hopefully. It's oh, it is. It's actually much more clear than than. Uh, well, I, I hope our conversation has been clear, but but I haven't I haven't stayed with the framework of the book, and if I had, that structure would have become uh, very apparent. So so it, it just in closing, to give you a chance to to say something about this, as you said, your the contribution that you wanted to make to to the field of Buddhist studies had to do with. Um, I'll, I'll just quote the title of your conclusion: "It's American Buddhism in a post age." So post-secular, post-modernity, you threw in one or two others, but, but <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, do you want to just say something about that to, yeah. uh, to yeah. close it off here? Yeah, I think, you know, I just think that, you know, we're living in a, you know, we're really living, in a way, it, maybe it's just easier to say, you know, like, we're living after modernity, 
you know, we're, we're living in a period where, you know, there's a lot of reflection on the gifts of modernity, which have been, you know, huge. Um, but there's also, you know, reflections on the limits of modernity. So I think, you know, we are in a new cultural and historical period. I mean, you know, the impact of the Internet and social media you know, of change things immensely. I mean, we're also living, you know, in a kind of, you know, climate kind of crisis. Um, so I think we are living in a kind of new world, um, even distinct from the modern world. And so, you know, all, everything in the world is being influenced by that new, you know, that new new period, whatever we want to call it, you know, postmodern, post-secular, post, you know, colonial. I mean, the, 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 the words themselves, you know, aren't you know that important it's just what they point to um and so it would be really naive to think that buddhism or anything wouldn't be impacted you know even if it's a refusal to engage you know the new cultural context there's still a shaping you know there's still a cultural context that's impinging you know on the tradition so i just yeah i just think we're going to see you know you know multiple buddhisms emerging um, which you know, and, and there'll be new names for them, um, and I'm gl- I'm grateful because it'll keep, as I say, it'll keep me in a job, and it's you know just so so interesting. It's a passion, obviously, of mine, so it's just a really <laughs> exciting time, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I would guess it's the passion side <laughs> both, more than both, the paycheck but, you know, side. Academia isn't the, the, the most you going? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay. And and then um, you had mentioned at the beginning yeah, that you have well, a new project you're working on with Amy yeah, Langenberg. So I'm really excited. Can you say something uh, so about Amy that? Langenberg, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I work on contemporary yeah. Buddhism and I you know, mostly do ethnography as my uh, methodology. But Amy Langenberg is a colleague of mine. She's at Eckhart College and she um, is a textualist. So she's trained in classical buddhism especially the pali canon but she also reads uh, tibetan as well so we're basically combining our skills um and we're writing a book for yale another book for yale um on uh the topic of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct um in buddhism you know in classical and contemporary buddhism so a lot of people have been you know really distressed that this has been many incidences of sexual abuse, sexual violation, and sexual misconduct in contemporary Buddhist communities. So we really want to, you know, offer a kind of deep kind of reflection on this with, with, with also some historical context. So, you know, how have Buddhists historically talked about sexual, you know, violations? Like, what does it say in the scriptures? Like, what do we know happened in actual lived Buddhist communities? Because, you know, the scriptures are... You know, they're, 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 you know, the idealized versions of Buddhism, you know, they don't always capture Buddhism on the ground. So we're just really hoping to offer this kind of historical, you know, and, and thick description of, of this, you know, reoccurring issue that causes, you know, so much suffering and confusion uh, in Buddhist sanghas. Yeah. Well, that, that makes really good sense to me. And it does seem like uh, it, it it's an approach that really hasn't been developed enough yet because there is it is something that's talked about a lot nowadays but uh bringing in the historical dimension yeah, maybe that will add 
a yeah we're really hoping that there's a lot of description uh, as you said yeah it's it's really strange because you know there's a lot of there's been some great reflections from practitioners and from you know more and more from survivors themselves you know first person accounts um, and then there's a lot of like media more kind of sensationalized accounts so we just want to offer something that it has you know kind of historic and kind of you know historic depth and kind of you know sensitivity you know to bring our skills as academics you know to this to this area right okay well i wish you well in that project and i look forward to seeing what comes out of it and uh yeah thank you and uh it's been a a great discussion and um i'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk in the future so thanks a lot thank you hope so bye yeah